Yes, yes. Team Green or Team Black. Some of you guys might think I'm leaning Team Green after that Allison video. But of course, I'm classically a dragon man, a good Targaryen dragon man. We're all good dragon men round crack claw way, after all. But it's actually a trick question. The correct answer is Team Small Folk. That's right, Team Small Folk. And by small folk, I of course mean the little people, AKA all the people in the story who are actually similar to any of us. None of us are lords or kings, and though a few of us might be born to wealth, not me, but maybe a few of us, it's unlikely that any presidents or prime ministers are watching and commenting on videos like this. Although, who knows? Justin Trudeau, hello. Maybe he's a, maybe he's a huge fan of the Starks, you know? Canada's the real north. Canada remembers uh, the Vancouver Grizzlies, I guess, who are now the Memphis Grizzlies. But I digress already. Uh, yeah, so fantasy stories, guys. Fantasy stories, they often cast their protagonists and antagonists as lords and kings, princes and princesses, perhaps for the simple reason that they're the ones with the most power. They're the ones who can cause great changes, the ones with the most riding on their decisions. They're the ones who can move the story, right? Thing is, this has the effect of centering the story around the perspective of those elites. They're the people whose heads were inside, whose loves and hates we learn about and feel as we read the story. So the problem with this is that it kind of, well, completely distorts the axis of morality. After all, the duty of any human being placed in a position of leadership over other human beings is, of course, to subsume their own desires, loves and hates, for the good of those they govern. But when you're reading about or watching a good character in a story, you naturally tend to empathize with the desires, loves, and hates of those characters, right? That's exactly what a good writer wants the audience to do, of course, to put themselves in the position of the main characters. But again, if they are individuals who are responsible for the well-being of others, then it's very important to evaluate their actions with that in mind, right? And not just to cheer for them to win or to find personal fulfillment even. It's kind of like we have to be able to switch between different contexts when thinking about the characters. The personal context of that character's story, their conflicts of the heart, but also the political and moral context which derives from their position of power and privilege in a feudal monarchy, or a feudal monarchy-like substance, shall we say. So when we speak of supporting Team Green or Team Black, when we ask questions like, who was the rightful heir to the throne? It's very easy to fall into the trap of centering the rights and desires and feelings of the high lords instead of thinking about how their actions affect the people that they have responsibility for. In strictly human terms, no individual is born with some sort of inherent right to rule over other individuals. However, basically all human societies organize themselves in various ways that place power in the hands of certain individuals. Blessings on you, your grace. Which leads to the famous maxim, the right to rule comes only from the consent of the governed. That consent may be by democratic vote or merely by compliance. But the point is that none of these princes or princesses have any sort of natural human right to sit on the Iron Throne and rule over the other humans of Westeros. The right to rule in Westeros, of course, comes from the political system that they operate under and is actually much better understood as a duty and a responsibility. This is the principle behind what's known as the feudal contract, of course, which essentially says that feudal lords like those of Westeros owe land, protection, and fair treatment in court 
to their vassals in return for the privileges of lordship, like collecting taxes, being able to call upon them to go to war, and so forth. Bottom line, the duty of anyone in power in any political system is pretty much always to prioritize the well-being of the governed, and anything short of that inherently undermines the credibility and even the legitimacy of their rule. Thus, the Dance of the Dragons Targaryen Civil War, which will be depicted in House of the Dragon, is fundamentally a failure of governance. Before any individual blame can be assigned, and we're going to do that, we can observe that it is, in general, a failure of the people in power to meet their responsibilities, with the result being that tens of thousands of innocent people were butchered, burned, raped, impoverished, and subjected to countless other horrors. Basically, all of the mistakes or choices which led up to the war can be understood in these terms. And in the end, this is one of the major themes, if not the major theme, of all of George R.R. R. Martin's writing in A Song of Ice and Fire, in the universe of A Song of Ice and Fire. This theme is defined in a quote about the title of the first book, which says, Why is it always the innocents who suffer most when you high lords play your Game of Thrones? Now, in the main series of A Song of Ice and Fire, the squabbling of the various kings over the right to rule is depicted as a dream vision of several radish dwarf men biting and tearing at a woman's body, which is an obvious metaphor to express the suffering of the common people. And we might also think of the scene as depicting the suffering of the land, or even Mother Earth, or the motherland of the people, if you will. The title of the fourth book, A Feast for Crows, it's the same notes, and so does the content, by the way, this time talking about these squabbling kings as carrion crows feeding on the piles of the dead that their wars have created. It's an unflinching and harsh assessment, and puts to rest any notion of A Song of Ice and Fire being amoral or nihilistic. It's actually one long anti-war story, if you think about it. And that's actually even more true for House of the Dragon. In other words, George is keenly aware of the dynamics of fantasy stories told through the eyes of princes and princesses, and he's doing a lot of work to balance the individual perspective of the characters with the tangible results of their actions. And by a lot of work, again, I mean the entire plot of A Feast for Crows, where we just sort of walk amidst the ruins and the wasteland of the War of the Five Kings. He's simultaneously luring us into taking up the grudges and desires of the main characters, into adopting their perspectives, while also looking to bop us upside the head with the sudden realizations about the horrific fallout of some of their choices. This is what gives George's writing grit and substance, what makes the story churn in our minds all these long, long years. This is what makes A Song of Ice and Fire feel realistic and not like a fairy tale, even though it's very much a fairy tale, which draws upon all the classic tropes, symbols, and archetypes. It's just that those classic elements of fairy tales and myths are being pulled down into the mud of human nature, because George essentially treats magical powers the same way that he would treat political power or any other kind of power, and he imagines his pretend humans wielding power the same way us real humans do. So he's kind of saying, sure, we're gonna give the characters access to dread powers and fell sorceries, and then we're gonna ask, what would people actually do with such powers? Nowhere is this more realistic approach to fantasy more evident than with the dragons and the dragon lords of the story. 
Dragons are, of course, the primary magical power that we'll see wielded in House of the Dragon. Although I think I'm going to do a video about other kinds of magic that we may see around the margins. But of course, the dragons are the main thing. We're not going to have any, you know, green seers like Bran or Bloodraven or White Walkers to fight. So it's all about the dragons. And on one extreme, we have the Freehold of Old Valyria, which used its ability to ride and control dragons to not only win wars, but to, oh, um, commit genocide and to brutally enslave countless thousands or even millions of people over the course of its 5,000 year existence. Wow, it's kind of grim. The Valerians fed these slaves to the infernos of their gold and iron mines deep in their volcanic hills, as well as to the sacrificial fires needed to power their various forms of blood magic sorcery. Again, pretty grim stuff. But no one reading it doubts that humans are capable of such and have committed similar atrocities without dragons or sorcery. But on the other hand, we have Daenerys Targaryen, specifically the Daenerys Targaryen of the books and of the TV show right up until the last three episodes, when D&D ruined the show in a dumpster fire of character assassination and cynicism and, oh, I already made a video about that. It's called Who's the Real Daenerys Targaryen? And you should definitely watch it. It's about two months of my life that went into that. It's like 90 minutes of proof about who I think the real Danny is. But the point is that aside from the controversial TV show ending, which I kind of just don't acknowledge in my head canon, and specifically in the books, Danny is someone who uses her dragons to free slaves instead of to enslave like her Valyrian ancestors. She uses her dragons to bring justice instead of merely conquest. And it's perhaps no coincidence, definitely no coincidence that Danny, unlike the other POV characters born of noble houses, save for people like maybe Davos, begins her life on the bottom rung of the ladder, right? She grows up as an orphan with only an abusive brother for a companion, and as a young girl, she's sold into marital slavery. Then, as she comes into power, we find that Danny is constantly relating to and empathizing with the downtrodden and impoverished, and she's constantly suspicious of the wealthy and powerful. There's no doubt that her unique perspective informs her values and then her actions. And that's why the first time that she uses her dragons in combat, it's to liberate the unsullied and burn the slave masters of Astapor. The key thing to note is that Danny understands the responsibility of kings and queens and all rulers. Instead of buying the 800 or so unsullied that she could afford to and moving on, which would help her goals but would amount to participating in the unjust system of slavery, Danny risked her young and vulnerable dragons and her own life, everything she had in other words, to take a stand against the actual system of slavery. Danny, as a former slave herself, realizes that the only difference between her and those who are still enslaved is that she has the power of dragons. And instead of using that power strictly for herself and her own interests, she used it on behalf of all the other slaves who didn't have dragons. This is the quintessential example of George's idea of what makes a good ruler. And that's also why it's generally considered the most powerful scene of the story, show or books.
The night before Danny frees the Unsullied, she utters a statement that is essentially the positive reflex of the one about the people suffering when the High Lords play their Game of Thrones. She says, Why do the gods make kings and queens, if not to protect the ones who can't protect themselves? And that's pretty much it. That's the moral axis for A Song of Ice and Fire, specifically for the people in power over other people. So even then, even when someone with a good heart, a functioning moral compass, and a clear understanding of the responsibilities of rule attempts to use the dragons to free slaves, protect the weak, and generally make the world a better place. George still spends a ton of time, and this is <laughs> the entire plot of A Dance with Dragons and some of A Storm of Swords, writing about all the unexpected consequences of her actions, dealing with the ways in which an omnipotent-seeming dragonlord would inspire fear, dealing with the difficulty in controlling such terrible weapons of war, and dealing with Danny's revulsion at the monstrous violence the dragons are capable of, and and many more things. So yes, it's a fairy tale, uh, a beautiful disinherited princess who hatches and rides the world's only dragons, the scion of an ancient line of kings and queens with magical blood who may be destined to save the world. It's definitely fairy tale stuff, but this is a fairy tale which is constantly posing very hard questions both to Danny herself and to we the readers. When Danny first climbs on Drogon's back and flies out of Daznak's pit, for example, we are supposed to feel Danny's exhilaration and to catch major never-ending story vibes. Story. Ah. But we're also supposed to look down and see the couple of hundred burning people. Some of those people were slave masters, uh, cue the Samuel L. Jackson, but some of them would have been children or servants and Dragonfire, of course, does not discriminate. And I'm not even blaming Danny here. The dragon came to the scene of slaughter and then essentially defended itself against attackers. And Danny did the best thing she could by standing in the way of Drogon very bravely and taming him with her whip and then flying him out of the situation. The point is that dragons are horrific weapons of war by nature, at least when harnessed by man, and even with the best of intentions, there pretty much will always be unintended casualties. They're very much a form of the sword without a hilt metaphor that Martin uses to describe sorcery in the story, with no truly safe way to grasp their power. As I mentioned in the Who is the Real Danny video, I think that in the end, the only truly moral use of Danny's dragons will be to pit them against the White Walkers and the Army of the Dead, a magical weapon for a magical foe, in essence. Now on the show, we saw that Danny was unquestionably heroic when she set aside her desire for conquest to take her dragons and her army north to save Westeros and the entire world. And of course, then we saw the show essentially try to turn her into a villain by having her turn her dragon fire on the populace of King's Landing, indiscriminately burning hundreds of people. In terms of the book ending that George is writing, I think it will simply come down to a climactic moment where Danny actually and truly sets aside all desire for the throne in order to take her dragons north and save the world. Most importantly, uh, without, without the strange reverting to previous selfish desires turn that the show created. Uh, but either way, the power of dragon riding is simply serving as another manifestation of Martin's commentary on the use of power, which again is the major theme of all works in the Song of Ice and Fire world. Now, in the age of House of the Dragon, there are no White Walkers to fight at the moment. And so far as we know, that would, that would be a pretty big change. So we're mostly going to be seeing the dragons used as weapons of warfare. Quite often, the dragons will end up fighting each other, but 
The true horror comes when the dragon flame is turned on mortal men and women and children and all the townspeople of places like Bitterbridge and Tumbleton. Uh, twice, twice for Tumbleton. Oh yes, and this very long list of small villages burned by Amond One-Eye and Vagar, which we documented at length in the Vagar Queen of Destruction video. Now the High Lords would already be at fault simply for throwing the realm into war over a succession crisis, which is the literal Game of Thrones fighting over the chair. But since we're speaking of dragon riding High Lords story, the horror is simply compounded. I'm sorry, I'll stop, I'll stop. Once it's in your head, it's, it's, it's tough to get out. So if we wanted to take real world parallels into account, it's almost as if Martin is combining some of the horrors of World War I trench warfare and World War I and II air raid bombing with the classic medieval stick them with a pointy end kind of warfare just to drive home the point of how costly this Game of Thrones truly is. If you've read the accounts in Fire and Blood of the burning and sacking of Bitterbridge and Tumbleton, uh, again, twice for Tumbleton, then you know exactly what I mean. These are truly horrific affairs atrocity-laden from start to finish. And then I also found this other passage in Fire and Blood where the citizens of King's Landing are preparing for a dragon attack on the city, and it says, Thousands of small folks streamed out the city gates, carrying their children and worldly possessions on their backs to seek safety in the countryside. Others dug pits and tunnels under their hovels, dark, dank holes where they hoped to hide whilst the city burned. So... Bomb shelters for dragon air raids, essentially. The parallels are pretty hard to miss. Now, as we know, all of this horror and terror is wrapped up in an absolutely stunning package, whether we're talking about the dragons or the dragon lords. I mean, what fantasy fan doesn't love dragons, after all? I, I've got dragons all over my wall. And this love affair goes back thousands of years, of course, with dragons of one sort or another featuring in the oldest mythologies of many parts of the world and representing a vast array of concepts. We, lucky enough to live in the post-Jurassic Park world of modern CGI, I get to enjoy these mythical creatures being brought to life like never before. And of course, everyone expects House of the Dragon to raise the bar on the dragon tech from what we saw on Game of Thrones. Then we have those sexy, sexy dragon lords. Yes, they're beautiful, vain, and carnal. They have the fiery blood of the dragon running in their veins, and they're gifted with prophetic visions and a natural affinity for magic. They are, for all intents and purposes, Martin's take on Tolkien's elves. They're human-like with very, very special metalworking, but they're also kind of a race apart and therefore perceived as godlike. Thus, the power of the dragon lords would seem to represent you know, the most seductive forms of power that we might think of on Earth. Things that are beautiful and alluring and fulfilling in all the wrong ways. Things like wrath and vengeance, right? I mean, compromise, who needs it? When you have dragons, just give in to your hate and let the dragon do the work. Yes, characters like Daemon Targaryen and Visenya the Conqueror and even Maegor the Cruel have that big boss energy, and it's fun to see that and root for it at times. But this is a deliberate seduction, and in this universe, it's always going to blow up in your face, Drakari's like Live by the dragon, die by the dragon, as they say, and while the dragons are dancing and dying, thousands of innocents are dying beneath their feet. They are the small folk, and they are always the first people that we're supposed to empathize with. So, Team Green or Team Black, well, we started getting into 
who gets the blame for various deeds in the Is Alicent a Villain video, and I'll be doing more like that for Damon and Rhaenyra and Viserys and perhaps others in the near future. And the key thing is to always keep the responsibility of rule in mind as we go. We can and will certainly empathize with various characters at various times and we'll try to see things from their perspective, but the first and by far the most important test to apply to any of these people in power is, are they using that power to help the people they're responsible for? That's called Team Small Folk, and it's really the only team to root for. So welcome to the bandwagon. There's actually room for everyone. It's quite nice. We got high-def TVs and a full bar. I picked the music, so that's on point. The couches are comfy. Come one and come all. Thanks for watching, everyone. Check out the links to our Patreon and our PayPal in the description below if you want to support the program. And I'll be back again real soon with another video to blame all your favorite characters for everything they did wrong. All right.